Welcome to the Sport Feels Life podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with coaches and athletes at the top of their game. This is a community to support coaches, athletes, and fans who share a passion for making the world a better place through athletics. We are serving our community and providing a variety of resources to grow and win as a team in the sports we play and the life we live. We are your hosts. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And we're so excited to bring you all things Sport Feels Life. When former collegiate athlete and competitive skydiver Sydney Williams unexpectedly found herself on the receiving end of a type 2 diabetes diagnosis while grappling with unresolved trauma from a decades-old sexual assault, she set out on a mission, turn her pain into power. Two hikes across Catalina Island and 80 miles later, she founded Hiking My Feelings to help others tap into the mind-body connection and healing power of nature that helped kick her self-limiting beliefs and put her disease into remission. Having more than 12 years of marketing experience with Fortune 500 companies and emerging brands, Sydney serves up her truth juice style of storytelling to break wide open through conversations with practical, powerful content and experiences. Over the years, she's been featured on the South by Southwest stage, as well as in the Huffington Post, Psychology Today, and numerous other publications. Today, she is the author of Hiking My Feelings, Stepping into the Healing Power of Nature, and she travels across the country, empowering others to summit their personal mountains on their way to becoming well-beings. We know you're going to be so inspired by Sydney's story. Enjoy this episode featuring Sydney Williams. Hey, Sydney, welcome to the Sport Feels Life podcast. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Why don't we just jump right in and tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to the idea for Hiking My Feelings, and your journey leading up to where you are today. Oh boy. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. And my journey and where I've been and where I'm going, woo, that is a doozy. Well, I'll start by saying that today is the third year anniversary of my diabetes diagnosis. And I think that's probably a great place to just jump in and start. Um, In 2016, I went on my first backpacking trip and I had no idea what I was doing. I did not train. I did absolutely nothing to prepare. I literally walked onto this trail with nothing but delusional confidence that I could complete it. Um, The trail was the Trans-Catalina Trail. It's 38.5 miles and it goes across Catalina Island, which is off the coast of Los Angeles, California. And for that hike, I had just been through like some of the hardest times of my life. So I guess I'll kind of rewind a little bit and set that up too. So in 2014, Um, I was a competitive skydiver for four years and in 2014, everything kind of started to turn around and take a turn for the worst. Uh, My friend Chris in January that year committed suicide. He was a former intelligence officer for the U.S. Army, um, one of the brightest lights I've ever known in my entire life. And he woke up one day in January and decided that was the end. Um, They found out later that he had recently been prescribed some different medications from the VA and they were tweaking the dosage. And it's likely that the medication led to suicidal tendencies because there was no part of that guy that didn't want to be on this planet um, prior to those medications. So that was the start of 2014. Um, We were also training for the USPA skydiving nationals with my skydiving team. And my teammate got injured on a training jump and it effectively ended our season because we didn't have time to train a new person on the team and we didn't really want to go that route anyway. So we were just like, okay, well, I guess we'll wait until you get better and we'll start training again for next year's competition. 
And then later that summer, uh, my uncle Mike died. He had a glioblastoma tumor, tumor in his brain and he had beaten brain cancer once and then it came back and took his life the second time. And that's after my teammate got injured, after my uncle died, I found out that my best friend Adam had died on a base jump in Idaho. He had gone down there for some training and was helping new base jumpers learn how to base jump and did a jump that he had never done before and struck a cliff on his way down and didn't make it. So knowing that the first uh, fatality that year, my friend Chris, um, when he passed away, I chose training over going to his memorial and I regretted that decision immediately. And knowing that I was kind of facing the same situation when I was making plans for Adam's funeral, I found out that my teammate was back and she wanted to go to nationals and we were like, okay. Um, I looked at my bank account and I only had enough money to go to Chicago once both nationals and Adam's memorial would be happening in Chicago about a month apart. And I could only afford to get up there once. And knowing that I had previously skipped a memorial to train and regretted that deeply, um, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to nationals, but I am going to the funeral. So we went to Chicago, went to Adam's funeral. When I got home, um, I was thankful that I had the biggest event of the year to plan. I was working at one of the premier skydiving centers as their um, coordinator for events and marketing. And we had our big annual event. I threw myself into work. I was like, go, 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 make it like the best event they've ever had. And it was, it was like the most well attended. Everybody had a great time. And after that event, I found out that my skydiving coach was arrested on six felony counts for sexual assault with a minor. Um, he had raped a 14 year old girl and was arrested and then later convicted on two of the six felony charges. So I had a decision to make. I was leading their events, PR and marketing. And at the time I was like, I know enough about crisis communications and I know how sexual assault plays out in the news. I'm not trying to keep this guy's business afloat while he goes to jail for sexual assault with a minor. So I left, I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't know what else was uh, coming for me. I just knew that this was not going to be the way that my legacy played out in the sport. So I retired from skydiving. I left my dream job. I was a fully sponsored athlete at the skydiving center and I just walked away from the sport entirely. It just really put a sour taste in my mouth. And I would say that decision was probably the beginning of my healing journey. Um, I survived a sexual assault in college that I had really tried to do everything I possibly could to forget about. And I, after losing so many people in the four years that I was skydiving, 23 of my friends died. So it was just like trauma after trauma after trauma and just exacerbating the wounds that I had never healed from previous trauma in my life. Um, and I was eating and drinking my feelings and just like drinking a bottle of wine every night to myself. And then in 2016, when I went on that first backpacking trip was the first time I actually had to process what had happened. And on that trip, I was 70 pounds heavier than I am today. I had gained like 50 pounds in short order after everybody was, um, after everybody died and after I left the sport. And I thought that wearing hiking boots at my standing desk was the same as breaking them in. Like that's the kind of mentality I was going into this trip with. Like I can do it. It's fine. I used to be a division one athlete in college. Like let's go. I still got it. I didn't. <laughs> I did not have it. It was awful. It was the worst thing I've ever done. And by worst, I mean like it was the hardest physical thing I've ever done. Um, and I was on the women's rowing team at the University of Kansas. Those workouts are hard. Um, and this was like above and beyond anything I've ever done physically. So 
I did learn two really great lessons on the first trip, which was I love my body, even though I didn't recognize it before that trip because I had gained so much weight and I was just so out of touch with my body and my spirit that I didn't know who I was, but I learned to love my body because the body that I didn't recognize took me almost all the way across the island. I didn't finish the hike the first time. I was in too much pain and the weather wasn't looking great for our last couple of days on the trail. So we ended up calling it early. And the other lesson I learned was that I can do hard things. So that was a nice reminder, not so much a new lesson, but like a, Hey, remember, like you used to, you used to do this. Like you used to be in touch with yourself. You used to be in your body. Let's uh, think about getting back to that. And before that trip, I had asked myself, like, what would be possible if I just honored my inner athlete instead of thinking about weight loss from a vanity perspective, or I need to lose, you know, 20 pounds before this speaking event so I can fit into this dress or whatever the motivation used to be. Um, ahead of that trip in 2016, I just wanted to honor my inner athlete. And that woke up something within me that just really changed my life. So the first hike was in 2016, nine months later, three years ago today. September 18th, 2017, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And it was just the kick in the pants I needed to get my life together. I already knew how to nourish my body. I knew how to move it in ways that made me feel great and made, you know, great progress for my physical activity level and stuff like that. So I took to it right away. I channeled all my people-pleasing tendencies into being the best diabetes patient my doctor's ever seen and cleaned up my nutrition plan, started walking 30, 45 minutes every day. And when that got to be too easy, I graduated to local trails. And then I uh, was taking my medications as prescribed and I was losing weight, which was part of the diabetes management plan. That was one of my goals, but my blood sugar levels were still super high. And at the time, I was working with NBC Universal. I got diagnosed the week before fall premieres. So if you know anything about the entertainment industry, that is a very stressful time. <laughs> um, and I realized that my stress was the thing that was keeping my blood sugar elevated. And so I tried to do some shifting with my work schedule to see if I could reduce stress um, around work. That wasn't happening. So I ended up leaving that job to join my friend's startup, which is not a stress reducer. Like you don't leave corporate America to go work at a startup and think that stress is going to go down. But my intention behind the move was I am really good at what I do. I am a professional marketer. I am an excellent communicator. And the clients leading up until this chapter of my life have been incredibly happy. The teams I've worked on have made them tons of money. Um, clearly I know what I'm doing, but I realized that everything that I was doing that I thought was a bragging point on my resume was really teaching people how to be sick and numb. And I was a byproduct of the work I was doing. So when I worked with different food companies that aren't healthy foods, I like I wanted you to eat lots of their food because that makes our clients very happy. Um, but that doesn't make you healthy. And when I worked in the wine industry, please drink all the wine again, do it responsibly, but and encouraging people to be drunk isn't helping their health either. And then when I was working with NBC, it was like, we want you to watch all of our programming, like sit your butt on the couch and binge, not making the world a better place there either. So I joined this startup because it was my friend's startup and it's rooted in women's empowerment and social justice. And I was like, you know, I know this isn't going to be a stress reducer, but at least if I wake up in the morning and I know I'm making the world a better place, I can probably deal with that stress that was cute. Like I made it 95 days on that job. Um, my first task as chief marketing officer was to raise a million dollars. And I had never done that before, but I've watched Shark Tank and I'm pretty scrappy and good at researching. So like Google was my friend. We figured it out. We didn't raise a million dollars, but I did start having panic attacks every day, sometimes twice a day, which was not fun. So I ended up leaving the startup after 95 days. Again, no backup plan, no nothing going on. 
Um, and four days after I left, I was doing a hike. I had decided to go try the Trans Catalina Trail again for my 33rd birthday. And I had been diagnosed with diabetes. I had lost 60 pounds. I was in like at that time, the best shape I had been in since I was rowing at the University of Kansas. And I was like, okay, like I know backpacking is an intensely physical endeavor, but I'm way more prepared this time than I am or than I was back in 2016. Like what would be possible if the hike itself wasn't the hard part? So I started training again. I was on a training hike four days after I left the startup. I was at the summit of this mountain outside of San Diego. And I realized like, I should be freaking out. Like I'm the breadwinner. There's no bread in the oven. Like I am a newly diagnosed diabetic who just gave up her health insurance. Like why am I not losing it right now? And I realized like, thanks to diabetes, my coping mechanisms of eating and my drinking, eating and drinking my feelings, those had to go to the wayside. Like if I was going to be the best diabetes patient my doctor's ever seen and get all the gold stars, I couldn't keep drinking a bottle of wine to myself every night and I couldn't have Ben and Jerry's for breakfast. So I realized that diabetes had helped me replace those coping mechanisms and now I was hiking my feelings. And I was like, my marketer brain was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Girl, let's go get it. So I was like, has anybody used this hashtag? No, what a miracle. Is this URL available? Yes, okay. Can I get the Instagram account? Uh-huh. And I was like, okay. So I kind of turned my journey into this like hiking my feelings thing. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But like, why was I eating and drinking my feelings to begin with? So on the second hike across Catalina Island, that's where I connected the dots between the sexual assault I survived in college and how that had manifested in my mind and body as type two diabetes and panic attacks and other like mental health issues. So I connected the dots and I was like, oh, that's fun. What do we do now? And I was like, okay, well, like, let's pause and take a deep breath and like, think about what hiking my feelings could be. So we ended up, I don't like, to, like, here's the thing. I don't do anything half ass. Sorry. I don't half butt anything. <laughs> I don't know if we're allowed to say that here, but like, I just don't know how to use moderation when it comes to having great ideas. So we ended up selling everything we owned, bought a van that's old enough to buy beer. And last year we drove around the country and hosted 140 events, both storytelling. So my speaking tour, sharing the story of how hiking helped me heal my mind and body and then leading hikes in every city that we stopped in to encourage people to get off the couch and onto the trail. That's a long answer to your question. You're welcome. That was amazing. Okay. <laughs> You're so fantastic. Okay. So I have some follow-ups. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's talk about first, like the process of what you're calling connecting the dots when you're on the trail and how you come to realize the trauma and process that while you're out there. Like, what does that look like? So the first time that I realized it was on this hike. So on the hike in San Diego, like I hadn't really been doing any kind of difficult hiking at that point. And so this hike is short, but the elevation gain is pretty aggressive. And I was immediately reminded of how much one spending time outdoors clears my mind and how much exhausting my physical body clears my mind. So there's a point when I'm hiking and it's usually like, I've come to dial it in. It's like an hour or six miles or after a really hard climb, whatever comes first, my body is so engaged and I'm so present that my mind is clear. And like, as the hike goes on, my body exhausts itself more. So it's like, I'm too tired to think about all the crap that normally fills my head, my internal soundtrack, that inner critic nagging at me about the choices I've made in my life, um, that I'm able to think clearly. Specifically with regards to trauma, um, if you've ever been to a yoga class, 
a lot of yoga instructors suggest that trauma is stored in the hips. And so for me, there was a really hard stretch on the Trans Catalina Trail back in 2018, where I literally had this moment where it felt like a universal two by four hit me in the head. So it was an incredibly hard climb, the hardest one on the island. And, and for everybody listening, it's not like I'm summiting Kilimanjaro, like the highest point on Catalina Island is 1800 feet, but the grade of elevation gain was like basically straight up. So I'm cruising. I am all the way present in my body. I'm just like really, really working. I get up to the top of this mountain and I am just like on fire in the best way. What happened was, was every step along the way where my body tried to tell me that I couldn't or my brain came up with some excuse, I listened to that and I was like, okay, well, where does that come from? Because like Sydney at her highest, most engaged, authentic, present self knows that she she speaks to herself like her own best friend. Like if I wouldn't say it to my best friend, I certainly wouldn't say it to myself. But as I'm hiking and I'm testing my physical limits, my body's like, hey, pump the brakes or more accurately, my brain's like, girl, you can't do this. You're still the fat chick from high school, right? Like it's all these negative things that I've heard throughout my life that I've internalized as my truth, whether somebody that I really trust said that to me, like things that your family says to you that you internalize as truth just because like you believe your parents, that's what you do. Or it was said to me or about me enough times where I was like, okay, well, if somebody's going to take that much time out of their life to say this to me, it must be true. So it was like when my rowing coach told me that I was too sh short to row varsity, when I was going into uh, corporate communications and I was really enthusiastic about the opportunity to have lunch with the CEO of this um, agency I was working at. And I came back and my mentor who was assigned at the job was like, hey, if you want to make friends here, I suggest you tone down your enthusiasm because like you're overwhelming with your energy. And I was like, oh, like I need to dial it down. I need to tone myself down. All these things, like you're ugly, you're fat, you're too, too young, too old, too whatever. I actually gave those thoughts space and I didn't believe them. I just said, hey, where does that come from? Is that mine or is that someone else's? So I was kind of like unpacking this backpack. I call it my trauma pack. So it's like, I visualize this as we all have these invisible backpacks on and we're carrying these things that we've collected over the course of our lives. So I'm unpacking this invisible backpack as I'm walking. I get to the top of the summit and I was like, when was the last time I felt this good? Like my whole body's on fire. I feel amazing. My mind is clear and I'm just like electric. And I was like, when was the last time I felt this confident in my skin? When was the last time I felt this uh, comfortable with the direction my life is going? When was the last time I felt this empowered in my body? And what goes up must come down. So now I'm going down the really steep part into our last campsite. And this is when the universal two by four hit me in the head. I was like going sidestep down the mountain because you don't want to go straight down or else like you fall down. And I was like, I'm not taking out my husband. If there's one thing I'm not doing, I'm not falling down this mountain. So I'm like sidestepping. I lose my step and I dig in my poles and I just like take a deep breath. And I was like, okay, get it together, Williams. You got this. And then I opened my eyes and it was like, instant clarity. I was like, oh, the last time I felt this good was right before I was raped 12 years ago. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, like I get it. Like hiking my feelings, like, yeah, like it's intensely physical. And clearly I've been doing some deep emotional work on this trail, but the root of all of this was the sexual assault that I never got help for. When it happened, I didn't tell my husband, I didn't tell my 
or I didn't, I didn't tell my husband because I didn't have one yet. I didn't tell my, my family. I didn't tell my friend whose house it happened at. I didn't report it to the police. I didn't go to the hospital. And then I kept that secret to myself for 11 years. And the first person I told was my husband. And at that point we had been together for seven years and married for five. Like I had been walking around for more than a decade with this trauma. And then everything else that happened between 2010 and 2014, everybody dying, family members, friends, base jumpers, skydivers, like it was a lot. And I finally understood what the root of all of it was. And then I was like, I want to skip down to this last campground. So for me, it's really, really intense physical activity and incredible, incredible presence of mind. That's the secret sauce for hiking my feelings. We're talking about some serious, like deep, horrible trauma that it sounds like you kind of box up and you, pop, you pack away. I mean, we, we all do that with things that are hurtful to us. How do you remain high functioning with all of that heaviness on you? How did you navigate the world with all of that inside of you, not being able to share things for so long and then taking on more and more of this like grieving and death and stuff? Like, how do you, how do you function in life? How are you a normal person living a life, working a job, showing up for people and friends? Like, how did that, how did that work for you? Well, I think the short answer is I wasn't, and I don't, I think a lot of us aren't, but we've normalized being messed up and we've normalized internalizing everything and, and suppressing our true emotions and not being able to talk about the hard stuff. So in the grand scheme of American society, I was as normal as they come, but we're all dealing with this stuff, like you said. And so for me, the way that I dealt was I drank wine all the time. Um, well, I, I used to do lots of shots and then I grew up and graduated into wine and felt like super classy and wonderful about it. Um, I ate everything in sight. I did not talk about my trauma. And I think the biggest one for me was just, I threw myself into a career. And like, if you look at my resume, it's damn impressive, but it was because I did not value myself. Like I overcommitted at work because I wanted to feel like I was part of something. And I made horrible relationship choices because I didn't value myself. Like I talk about it in my book. Like I I dated people that were like, I dated a guy who forgot to mention he was married. And then even after he mentioned it, I stayed with him for like an extra couple of weeks because I felt like I was in love with the man he was, he could, I thought he was. And I was enamored by what I thought we could be if he ever got a divorce. And then one day I woke up and I was like, ew, gross. What am I doing? Ah, like I had like these periods of like clarity and understanding between the booze and the eating and the bad life choices. Like I'm fortunate that my rock bottom was more like a slide in academic performance than like hard drugs or something. Like I was supposed to, like my life plan was to be a head and neck surgeon. I wanted to cut out cancer out of people's bodies. Like the doctor that saved my mom when I was in high school and she had cancer. That was my life plan. I wanted to go to school, go to med school, get a residency, become a surgeon, save lives. But this all happened while I was in college. And because I didn't get help, I didn't see that when my grades were slipping, it wasn't because I was suddenly stupid. It was because I didn't get help for the trauma. Like I couldn't focus in class. So I started failing chemistry 101. And I told myself all kinds of crazy stories, except for the truth. And I was like, girl, if you think you're going to go be a doctor, who's going to like one, if you can't even get through chem 101, 
who do you think you are to go and take higher level science classes, let alone get into med school, let alone get a residency, let alone be trusted with a knife to cut cancer out of people's bodies. So at the time I was bartending and I asked one of my regulars, I was like, Jimmy, what do I do? Like, I'm really good at, uh, upselling vodka and telling stories and he was like yeah you should do like sales or PR or marketing and I was like cool sounds good and like that's how I chose my life path like I gave up medicine and healing because I thought I was stupid but in all reality I just hadn't dealt with the trauma so like it's just a really weird path to walk down but ultimately like I think I was functioning because that's the only choice you have like I I think there was a lot of shame around the assault and that was, well, I know there was a lot of shame around the assault. I don't even think that I know that. Um, and that's why I didn't tell anybody. And I fancied myself as a smart girl who wouldn't put herself in that situation. Cause I blame myself for it because it was somebody I knew it wasn't a stranger in an alley with a gun to my head. It was somebody from work. And I woke up, I said a clear, hard no the night before I woke up, he was on top of me and it was happening. So I was like, oh, well, I guess maybe it's kind of like Cinderella and consent expires at midnight. I don't know. But I was so shameful about it that the only thing I could do was to build a life that looked impressive. So I didn't feel so sad and alone and just like gross, honestly. With those sorts of mental processes and mindsets, when you're in trauma, like clearly you're not seeing it. And so people who have places of authority in your life say things. And then like what you've said previously about like coaches and teachers and parents and people who speak into your life, who say things that are negative or not uplifting and encouraging you in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I was blessed. So growing up, um, I did gymnastics. I was an all-star cheerleader. I dabbled in like all the things in high school and middle school. Um, but cheerleading was ultimately like where I landed um, as far as athletics before college goes. And then it was, it was actually my mom um, that said that I shouldn't try out for, or she wanted to shield me from trying out for college cheerleading at the University of Kansas because I was a bigger girl. And I'm not like an bigger girl by like, what standard, right? Like I was probably a size eight, which was like not allowed in crop tops. Like it was enough to be like, you're not really fit. You probably shouldn't wear that. But my mom wanted to shield me from having my feelings hurt because I was a base when I was um, an all-star cheerleader. So I was the one throwing the girls in the air. Um, and when you go to a college environment, especially at KU, it was a co-ed thing. So I needed to be able to fly and I had never flied before. Um, and in my mind and in my mom's mind, I was too big to fly. So I just completely abandoned the dream of going and doing collegiate cheerleading and went to student orientation and ended up at the rowing table at the University of Kansas. And my coaches at Kansas were amazing, like absolutely empowering women. They found ways to help me with my body position that like nobody had ever like been able to explain to me before. And so it wasn't until I started skydiving that I really ran into body image and feeling absolutely just totally worthless as an athlete. Um, and I think that the responsibility, especially in this day and age, is like, we've just got to be trauma informed. And that's different for everybody. But athletes that are struggling, it's pr like, they want to be there, right? Like if you choose a sport, and you pursue it with everything you've got, a lot of times that's a lifeline for people. And I think what coaches, and I don't want to generalize and say that all coaches are terrible, but like, I think in general, coaching staff doesn't acknowledge trauma. And 
when you see an athlete that's underperforming or they're showing up late or they're tired or they're whatever, like maybe instead of assuming that they're out partying and doing whatever, or in the case of younger athletes that they're, you know, being lazy or they're not listening, like maybe consider that their home life is a little weird. Like maybe they've got parents that, you know, verbally or mentally or physically abuse them. Like you don't always see bruises because it's not always physical. So I think the, the responsibility lies in not assuming the worst first, but asking like what happened instead of being like, why are you doing this? Because the behavior is usually a symptom of a bigger, deeper problem. And I think it's, in everybody's best interest to start learning as much as we can about trauma and how to communicate in these ways. Because in some cases, especially in the case of young athletes, like those coaches might be the only person that actually cares about that athlete. And that's a tremendous responsibility. And as a coach, like if you're in it for the ego, then maybe you're not fit to be a coach, but there's a a lot of responsibility that comes with coaching athletes and understanding their home situation and their life off and off the field or court or wherever they're performing um, is a big, big part of their performance and their contributions to the team. Well said. I'm wondering with, you know, I, I feel like what we're talking about is starting to shift here in the sports world with certain coaches that we've even spoken to here on our show. You know, a lot of us are starting to view the athlete more holistically and think about these things that you're talking about. In the past few years, with more freedom being brought to the topic of mental wellness with people like Michael Phelps and various other athletes who are open about their own mental struggles, what do you think could be done still yet to improve upon that for coaches, athletes, everyone to kind of continue to be open about how they are feeling? I think it's a matter of setting up an environment where it's safe to fail and it's safe to speak about it. Um, Because I think a lot, when it pertains to mental health as an athlete, I think a lot of our anxiety comes from performance, right? Like we want to do well, we want to be the best, we want to go win, we want to represent our team or our country or whatever well, depending on the level of athletics you're participating in. But ultimately, I think it comes down to creating a space where it's not looked at, looked at as weak. Like if, if it's, I'm sure this metaphor has been used before and apologies for not listening to every episode, but I think like when we go to practice or we're performing and we get injured, we go to a physical therapist. Like we have a doctor on staff, we go to the training room, whatever that is, break your leg, get a cast, break your arm, get a cast, you know, like something happens to your back, get surgery, wear a back brace. Like we need to approach mental health with the same tenacity and urgency as we do physical health, especially when it comes to athletics. And I know more and more mindset is being discussed. Um, Techniques like meditation are being introduced that can help athletes visualize success and visualize what it looks like to win or complete a race or whatever. Um, But ultimately creating a safe space where it's okay to talk about it. And a safe space is not like a space is not safe just because you say it is everybody has to actively participate in that. And what we do in our programs, um, whether that's online or in person is we set up agreements. So whatever 
is appropriate for that particular dynamic, it's like, okay, we agree that we don't take these conversations out of this space. We agree that when someone is speaking, we don't interrupt. And like, it depends on what the situation is, but having a list of agreements that everybody subscribes to creates a deeper understanding of what the space is for and thus opens up the space to share things more easily. I love the idea of creating like a team contract where everyone is on board with the same thing and it really does kind of unify you as a group too. So that's, and I think it requires a lot. Yeah. And I think it requires leadership um, from a coaching perspective. Like I think if you're a coach and you want to like show up as your best self, your best self is your vulnerable self. Like if you struggle with these kinds of things, open up the season with that. Be like, Hey guys, we are living in a crazy world right now, especially for like younger athletes. As we start being able to return to extracurricular activities and in school and stuff, like for a lot of kids, this is the lifeline that they have outside of their home. If their home is a troubled place. So opening it up and be like, Hey, we're living through a pandemic. We're living through a social uprising. Like it starts by having hard conversations. And if you don't know how to navigate that, it can be as simple as, Hey guys, like, I don't really know what to say about this, but I know that it's important to talk about how are you feeling? It can be that simple. You don't have to have a doctorate in psychology to like open up the conversation about how hard life is right now in this country and around the world. Amen. (laughs) So you kind of mentioned your program a little bit. I'm curious um, with what you do, I, like what are some really cool transformations you've helped come to life or that you've personally experienced or someone in your, on your team has gone through? Like, what does that look like? The platform is in our programs and our organization is built on my transformation. So when I introduced hiking and backpacking into my diabetes management plan, it completely changed my life. It gives me a place where I can exercise and I've, my husband got me into hiking. He grew up in New Hampshire. He's like super outdoorsy. And he told me back in the day, he was like, Sydney, hiking's like exercise. It doesn't feel like exercise. Like the view is always worth the effort to get there. And I was like, yeah, okay. So like my own transformation from when I was diagnosed with diabetes to today, um, thanks to hiking was a, like 70 pounds lost and sustained. Um, I've reversed type two diabetes. And I think the reason that that is possible is because I did a lot of mindset work around my relationship with food and that I had a very disordered relationship with food because it was one of my coping mechanisms. It was one of the things that kept me safe. Um, It was where I turned for comfort. And when I started doing these adventures, I didn't want my body to be the thing that got in my way. And so my approach to food where food used to be the adventure, and to some extent it still is, I love cooking. I love cooking for other people. I love experiencing different cultures and their food. Um, But ultimately food used to be the adventure. And then I started doing adventures in my body and food became the fuel for the adventure. So my personal transformation um, just in my body and in my spirit is kind of the backbone of the programming that we do. And so, I mean, we've, seen folks go from never hiking before to doing these incredible, like, oh my gosh, there's this one woman um, who joined us and she had already done a handful of marathons. And then she started hiking, which led to trail running. And then she ran 
an ultra trail marathon her first year, like in our community. And I was just like blown away by her dedication and like her passion for this new area. And that also feeds into like conservation because when you spend any amount of time outside in the wilderness, you want to protect those spaces. And it's really nice to see how folks go from, I'm in this because I want to lose weight or whatever the superficial reason is. And not that losing weight is a superficial reason. It's, it's very good for you if that's what you're going for. But these reasons that appear to be rooted in vanity and like societal constructs, then morphing into like, this is a piece of land that I deeply care about and I want to protect it for future generations so I can continue to recreate here. And so then my kids and their grandkids and whatever can too. Um, I think ultimately the coolest thing that I didn't realize that would happen that I hoped would happen. Like when I visualized the program, blaze your own trail to self love, um, there's a component of it called summit circles and that's smaller groups within the um, class that meet once a week to hold each other accountable and lift each other up a shoulder to cry on whatever you need to reflect on the program materials that we're working through that week. And there was one group in the summer session where they were just like, they are best friends now. Like all of these women have just been like rallying for each other every single week. And there was one gal in particular who, when she first found us, she's like, hi, I've survived sexual assault. And like, I want to heal from it. And like really quiet. And then like three weeks into the program, she's like, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And she's like shouting from the rooftops that she's just like, she's, you can see the mindset going from like, I feel like a victim of a crime, which we all are to I have survived this and so much more. And what can I do with that knowledge? And how can I make the world a better place with it. And that more than any like peak bagging or monstrous miles gained, like it's the evolution from seeing somebody who is just like incredibly vulnerable, knows they need help and is just like looking for anything that can make them feel a little bit better in a healthy way to them shouting from the rooftops and now being a facilitator of the program. Like that's, that's the transformation that I'm just wildly in love with like yeah we've got people that are hiking 14ers in Colorado and that's impressive and also we've got some people that have summited their own mountain and that's probably the most impressive thing for me okay so next I'd like to just kind of talk about maybe if you could offer up three tips or practices that our listeners could do to help them cultivate their own mental wellness number one if you don't already um, start a gratitude practice And that could be a gratitude journal. That could be just thinking about three things you're grateful for before you go to bed. Um, But I use my gratitude practice as a way to pull me out of the really dark and stormy places. So if you follow me on social media, you're probably like, wow, she is like grateful for everything. That's also indicative of my mental health. Like, yeah, I'm a grateful person, but I channel gratitude when I'm feeling dark and stormy. So instead of worrying about things that haven't happened yet that I can't control if they ever do happen. I'm like, okay, pump the brakes. What am I grateful for in this moment? And if the only thing that is good for you right now is that you're breathing and that your heart is pumping blood to your body and your brain is still functioning, that's worth being grateful for. Start from there. Um, it started as a debriefing technique when I was a competitive skydiver. Like I would get down from a training jump and I would immediately come into like, if I had, if I had done the exit differently, if I had, you know, done these different moves differently, I wouldn't have sabotaged the entire skydive. 
And one of my coaches was like, hey, um, how about we focus on what went well first? So we do three things that went well, three things we can improve on and how. And the and how part, like if you don't know how to improve it, that's where your coach comes in. But the three things that went well, looking for the positive first, even if on that skydive, it was like, I jumped, I landed safely, I'm here to jump another day. Like if those are the three things, that is a great great skydive because I didn't die. Life is good. Um, and so I really try to channel that into my everyday life. Like what are three things I'm grateful for right now before I start worrying about all the things that could possibly go wrong or all the things that have gone wrong? Cause there are things that aren't wonderful all the time. Um, so start with a gratitude practice one, um, two, I love journaling and I really love future self journaling. So if you're working on a particular goal, if that's a race you're looking to accomplish, or if you're on a team sport and you've got like a match coming up or something like that, whatever your sport is, um, I like to pick a date in the future and write a journal entry as if I had just had the best day of my life. So what does that look like? Like if, if, if I was doing a backpacking trip, I'm like, okay, I just got done with the backpacking trip. So I'm like, it is September 29th, 2020. I am the happiest and healthiest I've ever been. I saw three bears. I saw 40 deer. Like I have no blisters and I go through all of my senses. So like the future self journaling thing is really, really powerful for bringing yourself out of a funk and also just for setting some intentions for what you actually want to have happen. Um, and then digging into all of your senses while you do that. So who are you with? What are you seeing? What are you tasting? Like if you're celebrating, what are you eating? What are you drinking? Where are you? Um, do you, Are you like on the beach and the wind's blowing through your hair and you feel like a goddess of the sun? Like write about that and really just dig into everything. And like there's like some in the spiritual and like woo-woo circles, there's the law of attraction and manifesting and all that. Really what we're doing is just visualizing what we want to have in our lives. And when you do that with great detail, like you might not be predicting your future, but the world tends to align in a way that that kind of experience will become available to you. Because if you can visualize what success looks, feels, tastes, smells like, it's a lot easier to get there than just like worrying about the how. If you're clear on the what and the why, then the how and the who will just kind of naturally find itself in its own way. So. Uh, gratitude practice, start journaling, future self journaling is awesome. And on the journaling note, like even just like writing about your day, um, you don't have to do it every day. Like there's a boatload of different ways that people journal and they're like, if you're not doing it every day, you suck. It's like, I journal when I need to, and that's okay. Like it doesn't have to be a regular everyday practice for it to be valuable. So like set up what feels good for you and go from there. And then the last one is like, get out for a hike because when you can combine all of those things into a hike, so you're thinking about what you're grateful for, you're present, like, what am I looking, like, what am I seeing out here? What am I smelling? What, what does the land feel like beneath my feet? You feel more connected to yourself. You feel more connected to the land around you. And as you start to create space where you can hear those negative thoughts and identify where they're coming from and decide if you want to keep them in your brain then you're cre as you let go of the old stuff, you create space for more stuff to come into your life. And more often than not, it's positive. So 
start with a gratitude practice, pick up a journal and go for a hike. And when you can combine all three, that is the magic right there. Let's talk about like what's next for you and what, what's exciting you and where our listeners can find you and follow along and join one of your programs and just take up all the hiking, my feelings, goodness. Yeah. So um, what's next in the short term, we are opening up a self-paced version of Blaze Your Own Trail to Self-Love, and that'll be available starting October 4th. So if you, if you can't commit to weekly meetings um, and all the like community support part of the program, but you want the tools in the toolbox, then that's available. You can sign up for it. You can go through it at your own pace. The community is still there to support you. Like you can post questions and like ask and will answer. Um, but we've had some feedback that people just want to be able to do it on their own. And we've made that available too. Um, the next class of Blaze Your Own Trail to Self-Love with live facilitation starts January 3rd. Um, and that's a 12-week program. And that registration is open on our website, which is hikingmyfeelings.org. And then our big like future initiative that we're starting in 2021, um, we are on a mission to get 1 million people with diabetes out for a hike. And we're starting that in November of this year, we're doing a take a hike diabetes challenge. So more information coming about that soon. This is all like sneak peeky stuff because I haven't really announced it, but you're welcome. Um, so we're doing the take a hike diabetes challenge in November for diabetes awareness month. And then in 2021, we'll be doing different activations and different, um, campaigns to help drive people and get them off the couch and onto the trail. So that's our big, like, huge goal. How can we change the world kind of thing? And we're really looking forward to seeing as many people as we can out in the wilderness. Yes. If the pandemic is the year of the couch potato, <laughs> right. 2021 looks good for hiking your feelings. <laughs> that's right. Well, and that's the thing. And you know, it's it, obviously the pandemic is absolutely terrible and my thoughts go out to everybody that's been impacted by this, whether they've lost somebody or they've had the virus themselves or they've lost a job or whatever. Like it has completely changed the way we live life. And also we have a tremendous opportunity to sit down and do some reflection on who we are, what we care about and the impact we want to make on the world while it still exists. Cause honestly, it feels like everything's burning down. So if we can do the best with what time we have left on this planet, whether that's another two, three, four years or another 50, um, then we've got a tremendous opportunity to really dig deep on the things that make us us and release the stuff that just no longer serves us. And like I mentioned before, when we can release the stuff that has really been holding us back, um, whether that's our fears or our own internalized lies about who we are and how we show up in the world, we have a wonderful opportunity to create space for the things we actually care about and make this world a better place. So as much as the pandemic has been an absolute nightmare for us, I had a total nervous breakdown at the beginning of the year because of it. Um, it has also been a blessing to be able to slow down and do some of this work to reflect on what I actually care about and how I want to show up in the world um, as we build a new one. Because honestly, what we knew, I don't think we'll ever get back to that. And frankly, what we knew wasn't working anyway. So I'm really interested to follow um, along with the people that are also taking this opportunity to build a better place for us all to live in and make opportunities available to everybody, not just some of us. So preach girl. Yes. Yeah. Sing it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Okay. Wow. It, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. 
Wow, Sydney's story is truly inspirational. It's amazing how when you shift your mindset and commit to living your healthiest life, you can really heal yourself, both physically and emotionally. Sydney is such a perfect example of that. She really is. I am blown away by her ability to take her pain and turn it into meaningful help for others who are hurting while she's also designing this lifestyle for herself that brings her happiness and joy. Absolutely. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it and subscribe. Consider leaving us a review to help others find us more easily. It means a lot to us and helps us get the word out. And we're always on the hunt for new stories to share here on our show. If you know someone who would be a great guest, tell us their story by nominating them at our website, sportfuelslife.com. Thanks so much for listening.